Hi, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to Global Edge Talk. Today we have a, another guest that was on the show before, Jennifer Spencer. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Alex. We have a very exciting announcement, actually, with Jennifer. Um, we will be starting a new series of podcasts about women in tech and innovations in science. And the reason that Jennifer is involved is because, if you recall, and we'll repeat it again, Jennifer is on contract with NASA. We'll talk about that. She's a software engineer. Uh, prior to that, Jennifer was uh, with um, uh, UC Berkeley in math and science. Prior to that, she was with a number of interesting projects and institutions tied to science, technology, and innovations. She's also an avid photographer. She's a proprietor. She's traveled to over how many countries? 40, 50? Over 50. Over 50 <laughs> countries. She's a worldwide traveler. She's a scientist. She's an engineer. Jennifer, welcome to our show. Thank you, Alex. Well, uh, first of all, let's talk about that beautiful backdrop you have, which is you you're, must be somewhere in the Caribbean or something, right? I am very fortunate to be working in the U.S. Virgin Island of St. John right now. Wonderful. Absolutely lovely. I'm really happy to be missing the freezing rain in Maryland. Uh, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> and uh, freezing rain in New York City. Today is February 19th, 2021, mm -hmm. and we have another day of snow. I actually canceled my trip to Florida to visit my folks who were just vaccinated, uh, finally, uh, thank God. And, um, you know, we had two cancellations yesterday and the day before yesterday. So hopefully tomorrow we'll be able to fly out. But let's, we have so many things to talk about uh, today and in general. Uh, certainly we'll have a lot to talk about uh, as part of our podcast series. Um, let's first talk about your a uh, little bit of your background. Um, how did this come to, how did you come about to become a, an engineer and working for NASA of all the places? Well, I didn't set out to do that. Uh, I'm, I happened to get a job that worked out that way, but I can explain that, I hope. Uh, I went to a community college and I took an Astronomy 1 class because I was just trying to figure out what I might want to do with my life. I'd always liked math. I'd been good at it since I was very little. And my father taught me to do quite a lot of math when I was very small. Uh, it was something that he wanted his child to know. So uh, I figured there would probably be something scientific in my future, but I didn't know what. And I fell in love with astronomy. I really did. And from there, I really wanted to study it as much as possible. Uh, so I went to university. I went to UC Berkeley, uh, transferred from community college there and got my degree in astrophysics and applied math. And my first job was actually there also professionally uh, as a data reduction person for a radio astronomy lab where we had a nine telescope array of small radio dishes uh, up in Hat Creek, California. Um, and from there, eventually I got a job at Stanford University, the competition in that area, so to speak. Um, Stanford and Berkeley are big rivals on football anyway. So that's sort of a joke. But um Thinking about Stanford, uh, it was a very different kind of a job. Uh, I realized that data reduction was not for me. That's eight hours by yourself in a room, not talking to anybody, and it's doing statistical analysis all day. You know, was it raining the night of the observation? Well, we'll need to apply some different algorithms for that. Is the bulgear on telescope number two running a little slow right now? 
you know, in our case, it was because it was out of a World War II tank. Sort of interesting. <laughs> Sometimes it was a little temperamental. Uh, so you had to apply an algorithm to correct data for that. Radio astronomy does a lot of work like that. It's very interesting, but it's also pretty tedious sometimes if you're doing it all by yourself, stuck in a room, and that wasn't for me. So I was very happy to have an opportunity to interact with people, uh, and I started doing uh, quality assurance database uh, entry and then um, design, uh, and then I became responsible for the telemetry uh, database at Gravity Probe B mission at Stanford University, and that was a pretty exciting part of my career. I got to be part of a mission, which was lovely. Uh, from there, I went to work at the Solar Dynamics Observatory doing something that was sort of similar, but that was more on the science side, and I got to know their data very well. Uh, then they went through a period where they were going from phase D to phase E, I believe is the correct phase terming, terminology, and they let a lot of people go because that happens once you've launched. So I was a rocket scientist without a rocket, sort of a bad thing for rocket scientists. So I went into photography for about three years because you got to pay the mortgage. <laughs> so I did that. Uh, and uh, then I was offered a job at Goddard Space Flight Center on a, the same mission, Solar Dynamics Observatory, but handling its data for the virtual solar observatory at Goddard. Uh, and that is through a contractor. Um, so I'm, I'm not a representative officially, not a press representative, but very excited to have worked there for a long time and very proud to be part of that mission. And that's how I ended up at Goddard. I was very surprised to get that uh, offer and very happy. That's an incredible story, by the way. And um, the question that comes to mind immediately is during this entire path, during this entire career path, mm -hmm. what were some of the challenges? What were some of the issues maybe or obstacles? Or maybe there were none, but as a woman in tech, in science, working with NASA, Working, you know, surrounded by mostly men, I would think. Yeah. Um, how was it like? Mostly fine, but there were issues. Um, I mean, starting in the UC Berkeley Physics Department, which was not very female friendly, there were some professors who were, I think, pretty sexist. And then there were many who were not. And there were some that were champions of women there. So it was a, quite a mix. Uh, and fortunately, you know, when I was really having problems with one of the sexist guys, one of the guys who was a champion for women was my other teacher. And he just said, oh, nobody likes that guy anyway. And I thought, oh, OK, then, <laughs> you know, and I just stopped taking it personally after that. But you, you have to have a thick shell because you don't know whether it's you, you're young, you're 19, 20 years old, you're impressionable, you, you know, your confidence is in question. And I would say the physics culture in general is one of confidence questioning. They do that to men, too. I mean, they, there tends to be a breaking down. Uh, there's there's a harshness in physics. Um, Those in physicists, huh? Yeah, in the social way, it tends to be that way in the education, um, and so that's so that's a challenge. Uh, and then I got to aerospace at Stanford, and the first guy that I worked for um, was a contractor, and he was so old fashioned that he asked me if my husband would let me travel during our interview. So that was pretty funny. Um, I told him my husband would let me do whatever I told him to let me do, and that didn't go over well at all. <laughs> so. However, somehow, despite that, I still got the job. So I, I don't know. <laughs> and occasionally, uh, you know, being the the only woman, um, I worked with a lot of people from all over the world on that mission. There were people from Russia, Israel, Japan, China, I mean, everywhere. And some of those cultures are really different. Some of them are really macho. And you'd get a guy who wanted to prove himself once in a while and just have to push back real hard and tell him that wasn't going to happen. Um, that he wasn't in charge. <laughs> 
And you know, people don't like to hear that when they're used to being in charge, even if they don't deserve to be in charge. So sometimes that was a challenge. I would say um, it was also scary in, in a very different way, being the only woman or one of only two women in a large room of men uh, during a really important review. I remember we had what's called a red team review for our mission. If we don't pass that review, they cancel the whole thing and everybody loses their jobs. So that's pretty intense. And as a data processing lead, you know, there's me and then there's our mission operations manager, Marcy, who is quite an excellent you know, mission operations manager and a career woman and older than me. Uh, so at least I took some comfort there, but that was it. There were 50 other men in there and that was it. It's just us, you know, and I'm thinking, gee, should I have worn lipstick? I don't know. Is that a bad idea? You know, <laughs> I'm not sure. So I thought, well, you know, we're just going to represent the gender as best we can because we got an example to set here. Mm. Um, but that was that was something I hadn't really thought of before that, you know, that was all on my shoulders that day. Well, mine and hers. And you, there it was. You mentioned a very interesting um, item right now, representing a gender. You know, it's kind mm -hmm. of interesting because men don't think in those terms. They don't well, they think never in, have to. Yeah, they never think in terms of representing a gender, right? Uh, right. I think the male nurses, the first male nurses on the job did have to take a lot of flack for that. You know, there were there have been a true. few entries. That is true. Yeah. It's yeah. unusual, but it happens. Although, you know, male nurses right now is, is not a, you know, it's not a surprise anymore. I would no, think, people right? just are, feel that's quite normal now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is your advice for a young woman who is entering the, the science innovation field, the um, technology field, be it a, on contract with NASA and mm -hmm. uh, being in charge of emission control, working on some incredible projects uh, involved with physics and, and um, uh, world exploration? what have you, what is your advice to those individuals, those women who are entering this field? I think it almost starts a little bit earlier. I would even go back as far as college. Uh, and then you can take that into the career field once you've been able to, I don't know, be learn to be a little bit more polite about it. But probably the most useful phrase you can learn is, thanks so much, or go to hell. You know, really, you have to be able to be confident in who you are and what you want and what you believe and know that if you're doing a good job and you're being careful and you're doing the right thing, that that's enough. Um, there are a lot of people who will want to tell you what you can be or cannot be. And you must tell yourself that that's a hard voice to find, but find it, speak it and keep going. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That would be my advice. I, I love that advice. I think, you have to have confidence. You almost have to have more confidence than, than others, than men have, um, in order to be successful. It seems that way. It, it seems that way to me, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It, now, it's really nice when you can find an ally that's a man at work who will also believe in you. That really helps a lot. So uh, finding an ally helps. Finding a mentor maybe helps, right? Certainly. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about travel. You've traveled to more than 50 countries worldwide. I've yeah. seen pictures of your travels, which are totally amazing, from uh, the North Pole and South Pole to uh, the African uh, uh, safari land and uh, most amazing waterfalls in the, in the tropical jungle and so forth and so on. Um, why? You know, is it because you're a photographer and you just love to capture this amazing beauty or is there something else? 
Actually, I love to see that stuff. And then I couldn't photograph it very well. So I went to school to become a better photographer. That was sort of in reverse. Uh, but I, I just, I don't know. I, I started traveling. Well, the first time I went abroad, I was 13 with my father. Uh, he had a, um, a business trip in Geneva as we went to uh, Europe. And it was not, not for very long. It was two weeks. I guess it was for very long now that I think about it. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience. And I thought, I'm going back one of these days. And it took me until I was 28 to be able to go again. Uh, but I did. And then I really never stopped. Um, there's just, there's something wonderful about seeing how other places live their lives, how they handle things, what their culture is like. I feel like I learned something about myself. I relax a lot more. It's, it's restful. It's a wonderful new challenge at the same time. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, there's just wonderful things to learn about the world. And I like to see them. Uh, and there's very, really no substitute for it. I mean, so I knew that in many tropical countries and tropical places, you get a gecko in your house. This is not uncommon. And the minute you open the door, you know, even if you just look away for a second, there, there are lizards in your house. Now, many people would get a broom and scream in horror and chase these lizards right on out of there because Lord knows that's bad, right? Well, you may know that lizards also eat mosquitoes and other bugs. And at night, you're real glad they're in there because they're eating those things and they're not bothering you. Well, guess what I learned last night? Apparently, it's not just geckos. Around here, they've got frogs that come in too. So when one jumped on me last night, it was a very interesting learning experience. <laughs> Really not expecting wow. that. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> but this uh, is the sort of thing that you know keeps life interesting. So it, I keep it comes traveling. with the territory, right? It, it's, uh, it's it's what uh, you have to endure, so to speak. Right? Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, all the bugs that that the bug that that thing ate didn't bite me. So there you go. Yeah, I'm happy about that. But it, it, travel humbles you, and it teaches you an awful lot of things. Uh, I learned in Africa that complaining is actually rude. In America, it's a pastime. But there, that's considered very poor manners in sub-Saharan Africa. Anyway, East Africa specifically, I should say, because it's a very large continent with many countries. Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you find things out and, and it makes you think, well, if, if that's not right here, is it right at home? You know, should I, should I change my behavior? Would I be a better person if I did something different? I think those are important questions to keep asking yourself lifelong. I think so, too. You know, our culture, American culture has always been very forthright and we always you know with americans travel we you know everybody knows it right uh, <laughs> <laughs> our white our white shoes to our baseball caps you betcha <laughs> whatever it is but everybody knows it right mm -hmm. and um uh it's really interesting this entire covid scenario the year of 2020 and even right now 2021 i know we're in the beginning of the year but yeah. uh, we're all anxiously waiting when the borders will open and we will begin traveling again. Mm -hmm. We will get vaccinated. Uh, we will um, freely be able to, uh, you know, cross borders with our neighbors, like Mexico and Canada, for that matter. Exactly. Um, what are your thoughts on how Americans and how America is handling this crisis in, in comparison to some of the other countries that you know of? I mean, you obviously travel, you're still traveling within the United States, but it's almost a, you know, a Caribbean United States, so it's slightly different. But um, I'm sure, you know, your friends, you know, all over the world are telling you, giving you feedback and so forth. What are those, what are some of those differences? 
Uh, well, my cousin got COVID uh, in December and he became very ill and nearly died. One of the things, thankfully he made it, but he spent some time in the ICU in Italy because he lives in Italy part of the time. Uh, and this was one of the times he's in Italy. Uh, now, one of the cool things they're doing there is they're actually sending EMTs to your house, not quite even EMTs, just very trained people to, to run some tests on you in your home and see if you need to go to the hospital. Uh, so if you don't feel good and you think, you know, either you know you have COVID or you have all the symptoms and you think you're in trouble, you you call and they come and they check you out. And they came and they checked him out, you know, that day. And thank goodness, because they whisked him off to the hospital. and We didn't know if we were going to get him back, which was a little scary. But he got there and they helped him. Um, so I think it's pretty neat that they're sending people right to your home. Uh, and it, it also makes sense in a way because you're not really allowed out of your home either. You have to write yourself a permission slip effectively before you leave your house. You have to say where you're going, why you're going there. It's a form you have to fill out every single time you leave, the purpose of your errand, the time you're leaving, when you expect to be back, I think. Um, all of that stuff. And then if you're, you will be stopped very likely and that form will be requested. And you need to, that all has to correspond to whatever time it is now and where you were headed and all of that. So they kind of have to send people to your house if you don't feel good. It's hard to say, well, gee, you know, I'll fill out the form and then I'll go get help, you know. <laughs> but don't you feel that we're catching up very quickly? I mean, I know that, for example, in the very early uh, days of COVID-19, mm-hmm. Uh, different countries handled it differently, obviously, and some countries actually had a lot more experience with it. Uh, countries like uh, Taiwan, for example, or some of the Asian countries, Japan, um, oh. Vietnam. Uh, you know, we even had uh, interesting reports that Vietnam handled it really well in the very early uh, stages of the of the disease uh, and the pandemic. Uh, and yet, we were kind of, you know. Well, I, I would like to point out that many countries in uh, Western and uh, Southern Africa have done, except for South Africa, have done a marvelous job at keeping it out of their country. Uh, and a lot of that has been taking it seriously from the beginning, recognizing that this is a serious threat to society and to the economy and people's health, uh, and then putting severe measures into place, like saying, no, we're not going to let you leave the country unless there's a really good reason, you know, or yet you're going to have to have a test. You're going to have to quarantine for two weeks. These are requirements. And we didn't do any of that. Um, so what I think one of the ways to see, well, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but I will say that other countries' economies are not really suffering and ours is not really suffering. It may soon. I think people's joblessness and people's personal finances are in a lot of trouble in many areas. So I don't want to downplay that. But I would say the, the country's economy as a whole is still doing okay. As far as individual experiences, that's a very different story. Um, so I, I don't want to downplay that. But uh, it's interesting to see that whether or not you took a draconian response doesn't seem to have an impact on the economy as much as one might think. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, so that's that's sort of an interesting thing about comparing. I would say that I think we could have saved a lot of lives if we had behaved differently in the beginning. And it's frustrating that we didn't. I agree. And um, many people obviously would agree as well with you and, and with the fact that, yes, we could have done a better job. And, you know, here we are priding ourselves on being scientifically advanced. Uh, we'll talk about NASA uh, trip to Mars uh, in just a moment. Sure. And yet... You're claiming, you're saying, and I, I hear, I'm hearing the same thing, being you know, traveling to other places in the world, 
that uh, other folks are handling it better. So it's, it's not that, it's, so it's not a matter of science necessarily, right? It's a matter no, of being it's prepared. Not at all. It's a matter of it's a matter of actually listening. This is available science. We all we knew it here. They knew it in Europe. It's they and and they learned about it as quickly as possible in other places. And it's a matter of action. And it's a matter of political action. It's not a matter of science. It's a matter of applying. Very interesting point. You know, because we always apply science to this. We you know, hey, we have three vaccines. We have four vaccines. Uh, yet, you know, we have, you know, I think now it's a little bit better uh, in terms of getting this vaccine out there. But I think in the very early stages of it, uh, it was somewhat challenging. And, you know, some of the states are, are continuing to uh, whether it's by choice, by their choice, by the governor's choice or by uh, inability to, you know, to manage logistics and to manage the distribution of this. Well, you, you've got to remember, too, that uh, at least according to my state's governor in Maryland, Larry Hogan, he's telling us that the states have never been asked to do anything on this scale before. You know, this they're they're reinventing the wheel. The National Guard and other places have had to do these kinds of things before. And it, it's just that it's it's the previous administration that decided that this was all going to be on the states, even though they hadn't done any of it before. They hadn't done the COVID testing and the um, COVID protections that they had had to do before either. It was a huge amount of effort, of human manpower, all of it thrust upon states, and some of which don't even have a budget to do it. And they're just being told, well, you look after it, even though there are, are federal mechanisms already in place. So that's just a mess. Uh, and individual Department of Health personnel are doing all they can, I think, in every state. But a lot of them are on, you know, new roads for them. That's not easy. And it shouldn't be that way. And that's where we find ourselves. But I will add that, you know, we're very fortunate that we even have an opportunity to get this. There are whole countries where their medical staff, their most important medical staff has not been inoculated at all. None of them, you know, so we're sitting in a pretty fine area despite these problems. I think our close neighbor Canada is having issues as well, by the way. Yes, they are. Um, Let's talk about another disaster. Uh, Texas. Oh, poor um, Texas. oh man! <laughs> but you yeah. know, I want I want us to talk about this in terms of science, in terms of yeah. uh, in terms of uh, technology, in terms of innovations, in terms of high yeah. tech. Hey. If you were a chief scientist in the United States, mm-hmm. if you were given the ability to do things better, differently, mm-hmm. given our governmental structure, given the fact that we're a republic. We have certain centralized things, in, you know, with federal government, but we have a lot of autonomy with the states as well. Can you comment on the situation in Texas and what would you do differently and how would you do it differently? Well, I think I think, you know, that uh, probably when you're asking this question, that, that Texas has resisted becoming any part of a federally regulated energy system. They worked very hard to avoid that uh, all, of, all of their history. They're a fiercely independent group. Uh, and that's that's the state of Texas for you. So not being a Texan, I can't say whether or not that's a good decision. Um, however, you know, if if I could, for their sake, I would make it so that at least my regulations match the federal regulations. You know, wherever possible. Here, let me try to get out of the sun a bit. Thank you. Uh, and really, they don't. I mean, I can show you pictures of uh, wind farms working great in Antarctica if you'd like. Uh, we have them. <laughs> you know, the the National Science Absolutely. Center. Absolutely runs them so it's not like it's not possible you just have to I mean, the russians them. the russians actually use helicopters in murmansk to uh mm-hmm. 
defrost and defreeze the uh, the blades of the uh, of the uh, uh, wind uh, windmills, right? Yeah, and that, that's in an extreme situation. But if you just even you buy a winterizing package for the windmill, you don't have to do that anything like that until it gets even colder at the Murmansk level of cold. Uh, you know, which it did not get in Texas, thankfully. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is all preventable stuff. And what I find interesting right now too is that yes, I think. 50%, some some large percentage of the windmills froze up because they didn't have this winterizing protection that they could have easily purchased. Uh, and yet the natural gas and nuclear instruments, the gauges of the, I guess, and part that runs the, that run the pipelines have also completely frozen. And that's the majority of where they're getting their power and they can't get it. And it's, it's not, it's not just the, eco, the ecological fuels, the happy eco, fuels that are are having trouble and in fact uh, they're over delivering compared to uh, what they might have done given the weather according to the paper anyway uh, so it, it's so are we it's, able it's to about, it's, it's a lot about perception and i think if it were me if, if i could change anything alex i would make data-driven decisions and the hell with perception and again you got to listen to your own voice and you have to use it how do you convince the states and the great state of texas to make a data-driven decision, to make a science-driven decision, to make a use-case-driven decision, to say, look, uh, let's be prepared better for the next time because we don't know what's going to happen next, you know, weather-wise. Uh, we can certainly predict it. We can certainly track it. We can look at it ahead of time even. But well, they, they also had this in 2011, so it's not like they had to look exactly. real far. So how do you convince... An autonomous decision-making power, the state of Texas, to do things differently. I think you have to take money out of it. You know, this is there's there's a lot of I think there's been a lot of profit issues that have probably driven this. It's got to be. You, you've got the regulatory body has. You know, I, I think what I what I'm reading, and because again, I'm not from there, so I'm I'm commenting here a bit out of the out of pocket a little bit. But what I'm seeing is that they're trying to deliver cheaper and cheaper energy at a higher and higher profit for the energy company. If it's a true utility, then, and not a profitable company and not a profit making situation, then I think you can, you know, enforce those safety regulations. You can start to talk about, okay, it's just going to cost this much to make sure the grid is safe. And that's our goal rather than we're going to make money from this. Or we're going to make sure that we're competitive with other energy companies nearby and we're going to get more customers that way. You know, so it's a very, it's a matter of focus. It's a matter of, of what the goal of, of the regulator is, what the goal of the company is. And if the goal is profit or customers money, then you're going to have a very different situation. Uh, thank you for that opinion. Um, let's talk about NASA. Let's talk about Mars. You know, we're not really profit-driven there, so we get to make <laughs> like we can make data-driven decisions. In a way, that's a luxury for a lot of people. You know, making a data-driven decision. <laughs> so well, I think it's a little spoiled that way. Uh, these days, it's a necessity, isn't it? Uh, well, it's becoming more and more obvious that maybe it's a good idea, at least, to think about it. <laughs> well, I think it, we, you know, this is a great example of what data-driven and science-driven decisions actually can save lives, not just mm -hmm. save money. But yeah. let's talk about NASA. Amidst what? all of this, COVID nineteen pandemic. Texas, uh, you know, all the other issues, we again land on Mars with Perseverance, with the rover. What, what is the significance of that? As, a, as, a, as somebody who's working with NASA, as somebody who's a person of science and innovations and technology, what is the significance of that? 
Well, for one thing, I just want to say that the team who did that did amazing work. It's really great. And just we just can't be happier uh, for them. I think everyone at NASA and everyone in the United States is really excited and probably worldwide from what I'm hearing from a lot of people outside the U.S. So that's really cool. We might even just say, what does it mean to us as a species? Because that's a neat thing to think about, too. Uh, this is all part of NASA's Mars Exploration Program. And again, I'm not a spokesperson, so I'm just kind of quoting off their website. And anybody who wants to can go to Mars Exploration Program in, in Google and look it up at NASA and see what our goals are as an agency. Uh, and where we're headed now, I'm just going to go ahead and read from that site for just a second because it's kind of worth talking about that there's a whole program, which is they're going to look for water. They're going to follow the water. They're going to explore habitability. And that's kind of what we're doing right now. Seek signs of life, which we're also doing right now, and then move on to prepare for human exploration, which is also part of what we're doing. I understand that there are, an, there is an oxygen generation experiment on this rover to see if they can, you know, maybe make oxygen generation happen on Mars to maybe make this human habitable one day. Uh, so that's part of why this is so important. They're going to look and see, they're going to do some sampling of what is a, a lake once upon a time, a lake bed. They're going to find out whether there was life in there, hopefully. There was a limited amount of instrumentation that you can ever send that far away. Uh, so there's also a plan to try to get good samples, then look at those further and determine just how good they are, and then hopefully go pick them up one day and bring them home. So that's pretty exciting too. Uh, but then we can try that's to find amazing. out. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, try to find out what happened there, whether there was ever life. We believe the evidence looks like it was much wetter and much warmer on Mars at one time, and then that went away. Uh, around the same time that microbes were formed and found on Earth is around that same time period when Mars was wetter uh, and warmer, theoretically. So maybe there would be something in this lake bed, this dried old lake bed, that would be similar to what we had on Earth or some form of life, maybe. A very small molecular form of life I'm talking about here. Uh, but, you know, that's that's what we're looking for. Was it was it like Earth? Was it not? What happened? Uh, and could, if there, if there is anything here, should we be concerned about ever polluting that? Is there more life? Could we find it? Did it live somewhere in some little pocket somewhere on this planet, this very large planet Mars, uh, or not? And could we eventually live there one day? Uh, Jennifer, I'm always amazed and fascinated by talking to you and learning so much from you. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show once again. I am very excited about launching this series of Women in Tech, Science and Innovation with you. And we're going to have some very exciting guests coming up, which we will be announcing very soon. I so, look forward to meeting them, Alex. Absolutely. Uh, you have a beautiful backdrop there. I see a gorgeous uh, sailboat and the beautiful uh, blue water behind you. So enjoy the rest of your stay in the Caribbean. Thank and you. until next time, we will be talking soon. Thank you, Alex. And it was really a pleasure to talk with you again. Thank you.